We are in the middle of a series called um, Jesus is Better. We're talking about this book called Hebrews, and I just want to own this week what I owned last week, and that's the fact that most of us are um, mostly unfamiliar with the Bible, and that's totally fine. And if you're mostly unfamiliar with the Bible, chances are you know very little, if anything, about the book of Hebrews. And so we're kind of picking it apart a little bit at a time, and I hope that um, this, is, uh, this is a helpful teaching. I think today's is going to be especially on point for people here in Houston, and I'm going to talk about why in a second. I just love when the lights come up a little bit. I can see your um, faces like now, and uh, because I really want to connect with you, and I want, I hope you will absorb this message, because I think for some of us, it's kind of one of those life or death kinds of things. I mean, not to sound morbid, but I think this topic today is going to be um, of a special uh, importance um, to many of us um, in this city, at this season in this city. Um, Houston is a very special place to me, and I can say that now that I've lived here for three years. I couldn't always say that, like right when I moved here, because right when you move to Houston, it's a little bit of, uh, you're just shell-shocked. It's a, it's a shock, and, and for those of you who are from Houston, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're like, no, Houston's fine. It's always been my home. But now when you move to Houston from somewhere else, it's not one of those love-at-first-sight cities. And uh, <laughs> some of y'all that are watching online, you're out of town, um, or you live out of town, you may not know this at all, what I'm about to say, but Houston is a little bit of an acquired taste. And uh, it, it takes a minute. I love it now, but it took a minute. And whenever I talk to people who have just moved to Houston, like people that uh, maybe moved to Houston in the last few years like I did, you know, it's a little bit, first of all, it's a little bit of a grief share moment because these past three years, there's been a major flood every year. And it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> and we don't know what we're in for here. Like, it just seems like maybe this is just how life is. In Houston, we had the Memorial Day floods right when we moved here. And then Tax Day flood. And then Harvey is like, oh, my goodness. Uh, where do we go? Where do we go from here? You know what I mean? Um, that kind of feeling. But when I talk to people that are newer than me to Houston, I usually just encourage them. I tell them that moving to Houston is a little bit like bringing a baby home from the hospital. But instead of your baby, it's somebody else's baby that they gave you. And you don't know this baby. You have no familiarity at all with this baby. The baby doesn't know your voice. You're not biologically connected to this baby. You're not even sure if you have to love this baby because this baby inconveniences you. This baby makes your life harder. And so some days you're just on the fence about whether or not you want to take care of this baby because it's a baby. And so on the one hand, you're like, yeah, it's a baby. I should probably take care of it. On the other hand, you're like, this baby doesn't care about me. That to me is Houston. Like this baby, <laughs> this baby is oblivious to my needs. You know what I mean? And it, it, that's the feeling when you have when you first move to Houston. Now, over time, you love the baby because it's a baby. It's adorable. It's of value, precious worth. You have to love the baby. But it takes you a minute to get there. And to me, that's what Houston is like. You love Houston. It just takes a minute. To get there, because it can be a little bit, uh, a little bit shocking to move here. The most shocking thing about Houston for me, moving from the lazy Midwest where I lived for 13 years in Kansas City, was how tireless and fierce Houstonians are about everything from work to college football. Like everything is just pedal to the metal in Houston, you're a ferocious bunch of people. You do everything hard. And I love that about you now, but it took me a minute. You know what I'm saying? Like, when it, it took me a minute to figure out you work hard and you parent just as hard. 
and you vacation just as hard, you know, and you party just as hard, and you recover from hurricanes just as hard, and, and you're tireless, and I love that about our city now, but it also gives me cause for concern because as good as we are at going pedal to the metal, work all the time, leave nothing on the floor, win at all costs, as good as we are at all that, I think we're equally bad at rest. I think we have no idea what it means to rest. When was the last time you got some rest? And I don't mean sleep. Houstonians think rest means passing out after not being able to go anymore at whatever it is you're doing. That's not what I'm talking about. When was the last time you got some waking rest? You were awake and at rest, at peace. In your heart, rest as a way of being alive, a way of being awake. When was the last time you rested like that? This is not a self-help sermon. This is not about you living a better life or whatever. This is theological stuff because I believe you were created by God with a rhythm, a rhythm of work and rest. I believe God created you to work hard, to be ambitious, and I think God created Houstonians the way that we are, and I think God loves how hard we go at things. But I don't believe he created us to do those things at the peril or at the expense of rest. Because the whole Bible, from the first page of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation, is about this rhythm of working hard, going hard at life, but also resting with God, resting with the one who made us. We're good at the former. We're not as good at the latter. In the story of creation in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, God makes everything. He works for six days. He works hard. And after everything is made, he rests. He sets this rhythm in motion for us. He works and then he rests on the seventh day. And so Adam and Eve are made in God's image. They're made to work and they're made to rest. Their rest is in God. Their rest is in the paradise of Eden. And then sin sin enters the picture. Sin is just departure from God's will, a willful sort of departure from the way we're created to live. And the way the Bible talks about sin entering the picture is this wonderful story of the, the talking serpent and the fruit. And we all know that story. And everybody that has an iPhone, you have the image of that story on the back of your iPhone right now. The apple with the bite in it, that's what that means is a, is a, a sort of an ode to this story of original sin. What's interesting, though, is we Christians have told the world that the consequences of sin are death and hell. That's all we've told people about the consequence of sin. What's the consequence of the first sin? After Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit, it's not hell they enter into. It's not death they enter into. It's a state of constant unrest. Unrest. Restlessness is the consequence or the the punishment for that original sin. One book later in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, God wants to give the people our rest back. He wants to reinstate the rhythm of rest among the people. So he he hands down the Ten Commandments. Even if you're not a religious person, you probably know something about the Ten Commandments. If you're a fan of Monty Python, you know something about the 15 Commandments. Anyone? And anyway, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. Uh, so, uh, so the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, number four on God's top ten list 
of the most important rules. Number four is get some rest. Sabbath rest. Work hard six days. Rest on the seventh. Do nothing on the seventh day. Rest regularly. Rest. It's not self-help. It's theology. You're created to live that way, to work and to rest. And so he puts this in the top ten list, which is fascinating to me, especially as a, I'm, I'm a full-blooded Houstonian now. I'm, I'm with you on all the things I said earlier. And I laugh in the face of the fourth commandment. Like I wouldn't any of the other commandments. I wouldn't brag about adultery or murder or stealing or even coveting. I wouldn't brag about that stuff. But, man, I brag about breaking the fourth commandment all the time. Don't we? Oh, uh, I'm such a hard worker. That's what, we don't say that. We, that's just what we're thinking. We're communicating. I'm, my, my work ethic, I'm just such a, I'm such a man's man or I'm such an awesome woman or whatever. Like, um, <laughs> sometimes I say things like that and I think that can be cut out of a sermon. Or me saying I'm an awesome woman. And uh, anyway, the, the bragging that we do, I'm such a tough man or whatever. I'm such a great person. I don't remember the last time I took a day off. I'm so committed to my work. I'm so committed to climbing the ladder, to advancing, you know. I work so hard. I can't, I haven't taken a day off in months. I went on vacation with my family. I've worked through my vacation. And we say that shaking our hands, but deep down we're bragging. It's a point of pride. I just want you to think about that. I'm not judging anyone necessarily here, but like you got to think about what we're actually doing. We would never do that with any of the other commandments. <laughs> you would never walk around saying that about murder, you know. I'm such a, such a tough guy. I can't remember a day I didn't, I didn't kill a lesser man. I can't remember a day. It's been months since I didn't murder anyone. You know, I, I, my family went on vacation. I just couldn't tell myself I murdered on vacation. You know, like, you wouldn't say that about any of the other commandments. But number four, it's fine because we're addicted to work in ways we're not addicted to some of that other stuff. We're addicted to the self-sufficiency, the power that comes, the control that comes from that kind of work. Now, the Sabbath rule wasn't actually instituted in Exodus 20. It was instituted four chapters before that in Exodus 16. When God saw the people, the Hebrew people, the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, forefathers of the audience of the book of Hebrews, so a thousand years before the book of Hebrews was written, the ancestors of those people were wandering around in the wilderness. They'd been freed from their slavery in Egypt, and they were waiting to see where God was going to send them next. And they started to panic because they didn't know how to grow their own food. They didn't know how to hunt. They'd been slaves. And so they're starving in the wilderness. And God decides to give them manna from heaven. And God says, I'm going to give you guys bread from heaven. Every morning that you wake up, go outside your tents. There's going to be this white, sweet, crispy bread on the ground, covering the ground for six days a week. Go out and harvest it and have your fill. And God says, on the sixth day, I'm going to give you twice as much as you need for the sixth day. So that you can harvest twice as much and rest on the seventh day, eating what you harvested the day before. That was God's arrangement with the people. He wanted them to get back to that rhythm of rest again because it was so important to his heart that the people rested. Now, most of the people, I suppose, followed those rules. You went out six days. The sixth day, you harvested twice as much. You rested on the seventh, and you ate what you harvested the day before. But there was a certain faction of people within the Israelite community. I call them the Houstonian faction of the Hebrew community who woke up on that seventh day and went, hmm, there's my chance to get ahead because everybody else is sleeping in. 
I can go out and harvest another day's worth. Man, maybe I can sell it. Maybe I can get myself a new car, some extra tacos, whatever. Like, I can take care of my family more, you know. That is Houston to me. These people got up on the seventh day. God told them not to. They went out anyway. But they went out to harvest manna that wasn't there. The only stuff that was left on the ground was the stuff that was left over the day before. It was all rotten and nasty. And so they went home after working empty-handed. They went home exhausted when they should have been resting at home like God told them to. So not only were they not ahead, but they were actually behind because they didn't get the rest that others had gotten. I think that kind of opportunism is close to the heart of the Houstonian. Now, today's chapter from Hebrews speaks directly to that Houstonian heart. And we're going to fly through chapter 4 of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, you can get it out. You can open it up to Hebrews chapter 4. If you don't, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. Um, the verses will be on the screen behind me. And you can also find them on your study guides. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verses one Two, three. All right, y'all dial in with me here. Here we go. Uh, Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. They are the ancestors who wandered in the wilderness. Just as they did were the ancestors, their good news wasn't the gospel of Jesus. Their good news was the promised land. So throughout this chapter, he's going to be comparing the promised land with the promises of Jesus' gospel, okay? So they uh, received the good news, just as we did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So there were some who believed and some who did not, some who trusted and some who didn't. Now, We who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on my oath, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, rest was the promised land for the ancestors. And God is angry at the people. The question is why? We don't like to think about God as getting angry. But I think it helps us if we figure out the source of that wrath, of that anger. Why is God mad at the people who didn't enter the Holy Land? Now, clearly it's because they didn't believe. But I think it's a matter of trust. They didn't really trust God. And this is borne out clearly in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Numbers. Everybody's got Numbers memorized, of course. No, it's actually the one that everybody gets to and they quit. They try to read all the way through the Bible and they get to Numbers. And they're like, I just can't. I can't do it. And, and so Numbers 13 is where Moses is wandering with the people, leading the people through the wilderness. They're just outside of the promised land. They're almost there. Well, Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land to see what's there. What's in the What's in the promised land? What are we going to be up against when we get there? Come back and report to me. So 12 spies go in. Ten of them come out with their heads shaking. You know what they say, the ten spies? They say there's no way we can go in there and take that land. There is no way we're going to be able to do that. You know what they said? They said, those people are so tall. Those people, they are enormous. They are tall people. And they will crush us. We're just little guys. They're so tall. 
And God in heaven is like, you guys have to be kidding me. That, that's a paraphrase, but I've got to imagine that's what he's thinking. You guys, you've got to be kidding me here. I just walked you through the Red Sea. I just freed you from Egyptian slavery. I parted the waters for you and sank your pursuing enemies behind you. You've got to be kidding me with this they're so tall business. You don't think I can handle some tall guys? Like, I think I've got this, but they're so afraid. They're so afraid they don't trust enough to escape their fear. They don't trust God, and that lack of trust is what upsets him. Because God created us to what? Rest. Rest is trust. When you rest with someone, you trust that person. You don't need to be in control. You don't need to be self-sufficient. Now, luckily for us, the story doesn't end there. The next section of this uh, chapter from Hebrews 4 is verse 9 through verse 11. It says, there remains then, it says there's still hope, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Hang on to that. That's going to be important, their works. We're going to talk about what that means. Just as God did from his, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Still talking about the ancestors that didn't trust. That word works is what this whole passage hinges on. If you don't understand what that means, you're going to be lost. That word works is specifically a religious word. The word works used in this passage in the original language in Greek was the same word used for every religious work. So the religious works of going to temple, the religious work of giving money to a priest, the religious work of sacrificing on an altar so God's not mad at you anymore, those kinds of works were thought by the Hebrew people to make you right with God. So if you had been out of sorts, if you had not been in God's good graces, if God was mad at you or something was going wrong in your life, you could go and do these works and be made right with God. Here's the problem with these works, and not just Jewish people believe them. Every single religion believes that works make you right with God. That's what religion is, is works making you okay with God again. But here's the problem with works. No matter how many of them you do, it's never enough. It's never enough. It never stops. Religion is this self-perpetuating, exhausting cycle that lines the pockets of religious professionals and keeps other people, regular everyday people, wrapped up in doubt and fear about God and how he, is, how he feels toward them. That's what religion does. And no matter what you do, it's never enough. Imagine, imagine you got a problem. Imagine your wife is sick. Or imagine your favorite goat is infertile, okay? And you got a problem and you think God did it and God's mad at you. And so you do the works. You go to temple. You pay the priest. You give an offering. And when you get home, it seems like for a day or two, your wife turns a corner. Your goat takes a lover. Everything's back to normal. Everything seems good. But what happens in when a few days your wife takes a turn for the worse? She's on her deathbed. She's at death's door again. What happens when your goat's lover had a vasectomy before he was divorced and didn't want kids anymore? What happens when things go wrong again? What do you do? You go back to the temple. Give more money to the priest. Leave a better offering this time, a more expensive one, because clearly that last one did not satiate God's wrath. It did not satisfy God's anger. He's still upset because your goat and your wife still have problems. So you just keep going with this exhausting, 
cycle of unrest to win God over with your performance. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is. He draws the distinction between those religions of men and the gospel of Jesus. And he does this by illustrating the difference, the clear difference between the function of priests, religious priests, and the function of the priesthood of Jesus. Religious priests and the priesthood of Jesus. This is where he does it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is the last passage I'm, I'm reading, so if you're tired of this, that's okay. Um, just hang in there with me. Four, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I just want to give you a little disclaimer. I'm about to offend some people. Um, um, next five minutes are going to be highly offensive for anyone who is Catholic, maybe, or from any religion that still lifts up priests. I don't mean it to be personal. I just mean it in a general way, okay? I have often struggled with the concept of priesthood. Part of my struggle, the concept of priesthood, is the fact that I have often been mistaken for a priest. I know, believe it or not. Some people don't know any better. Some people think all pastors are priests. And so... There's like one time this guy came up to me and said, I have to explain to you why I don't come forward for communion at the end of your services. And he said, I've been divorced, Father. He said, I've been divorced, Father. And I cringed. I just visibly cringed. And he was like, I know it's a sin, Father. I know it's And I was like, no, just stop calling me Father. It's not about the divorce. Just stop. Stop calling me Father because you're older than me and you're a grown man and it's weird. Stop calling me. It just weirds me out. There's only two people in the world that should call me father, and they're my little kids. And, and Gio has my permission to call me Poppy if she ever wants to do that. She, she hasn't. She never has. She never has. But the offer still stands. That's all I'm saying. Okay? You okay, babe? All right. So I, I think the important differences between pastors and priests, this is so critical to understand. Pastors, like Gio and I, we, we teach, we inspire, we organize community, we mobilize community. Sometimes we'll interpret scripture based on, you know, our experience with scripture and things like that. And priests do all that stuff. But priests, the priestly function also includes this intermediary function. Priests function as a go-between, a middleman. Priests talk to the people for God. And priests talk to God for the people. That's just, by definition, what the priesthood is about. Here's the problem with priesthood in terms of men, people serving that function. The problem is, it's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. I thank God every day that I don't have that pressure weighing on me. Because that pressure means you've got to keep up appearances. Priests face this pressure of 
in some way, having to appear to be perfect, having to appear to have it all together. Priests must not be real with people. Priests must not party with people. Priests must not show weakness with people or vulnerability or that they've been tempted or that they sin regularly. It's this constant pretending that you have to do in that role. It's way too much. But Jesus, unlike priests of man-made religions, Jesus wasn't pretending. His perfection wasn't external. It wasn't an act. He wasn't acting. His perfection, his holiness was internal. He didn't need to keep up appearances. He didn't care what people thought about him on the outside. He knew who he was on the inside. And so Jesus said, yes, I've been tempted to sin. Of course. Yes, I drink wine at weddings. Yes, I party with prostitutes around me. Yes, I cry when my friends die. Yes, I'm scared to death of being crucified. Yes, I would like another plan if it's possible. Yes, of course, I'm vulnerable. Yes, I'm weak. Yes, I'm just like you. I know what it's like because his holiness was authentic. He can be authentic with us because his perfection is genuine. He can be genuine with people. This is one of the most important differences between the priests of man-made religions and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That and just what they require of people. Priests want more from you. Jesus wants more of you. Priests want more works and expect more works from you. Jesus wants and expects more rest for you. Priests hope you, in some way, fear God enough to keep coming back to them. They hope that you fear the wrath of God to keep them employed, to keep their institutions of whatever religion in business. That's what it's all about. Jesus has none of that. He has time for none of that. Jesus just hopes you trust him. No fear, no anxiety, just trust and love and rest. That's the reason Jesus came. He wants more of you to rest more in him because you trust Jesus more than anyone. That, I think, when I think about that, is the definition of what we call prayer. Prayer is rest. Rest for your weary soul in God because you trust him. That's what prayer, and I know a lot of people are really, really mystified by prayer. It's like one of the first questions people ask. Once you figure out the Bible, you want to talk about prayer. Like people that are inching their way back toward, toward Jesus, like, that's what you want to know. How am I supposed to pray? You, want, you don't think you have the words to say. You don't think you know how to pray right. You don't think it really makes a difference because if God's really God, isn't he going to do whatever he should do with or without my advice? You know, that's how we think about prayer because the only kind of prayer you've ever witnessed personally is religious prayer. Prayers that other people tell you to pray. Prayers people tell you to pray for absolution or for whatever reason, you know, kind of rote, kind of Santa Claus Christmas listy kinds of prayers, those kinds of religious prayers. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not the kind of prayer we have in light of what Jesus has done. Prayer should not, in light of Jesus, be religious. 
that should not be complicated. It should not be an obligation, and it should not go through a middleman like me. Prayer is more of you resting more in God, trusting Jesus more than anyone or anything. Prayer is rest in him. To pray is just to acknowledge to God that you're not in control, that you can't do it on your own. It's not sustainable, this rhythm you're in. And that's okay because it was never up to you to begin with. And there's freedom in that, y'all. There's freedom in acknowledging, finally, it's not all up to you. You don't have to have all the answers or figure out all your problems or do everything just right. God never needed your perfection. He only wants your affection. That's the whole thing, y'all. We can go home. That's the whole part of it. That's the whole gospel. You don't need to be perfect with him. He just wants your heart because you're his kid. You're his kid and he's your dad and he loves you. Even when you act like a baby, even when you're obstinate, even when you don't love him back, you know, he loves you. Even when you're an inconvenience, when you make things hard for him, he loves you and he died to be loved by you. And that's it. So what are you, you know, what are you waiting for? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being religious? I've just told you it's not about that. Are you afraid of losing some friends? If your friends dump you because you're happier and more restful and more at peace, maybe they weren't your friends to begin with. Maybe you're afraid of losing control, and I understand that. I get it. Sometimes, though, our fears sound a lot like the fears of those spies standing outside the, the promised land. Sometimes we think to ourselves, okay, uh, I, I don't think God knows what I'm up against. And God's like, look, I just split the Red Sea for you and all that stuff. And you're like, no, that wasn't me. That was some other dudes 3,000 years ago. God, you don't, know, you don't know how tall my enemies are. You don't know what a jerk my boss is. You don't know what my life is like at home with my family. You don't know what kind of debt I'm in. You don't know what kind of pain I'm in. You don't know what it's like, God, to be me. You don't know how awful religious people have treated me for whatever. You don't know how religious people have been to my friends, my best friends. You don't know. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way. So let us approach with confidence the throne of God's glory. Guys, I think we're running out of excuses. You don't think Jesus knows what it's like to be mistreated by religious people? Have you ever seen the passion of the Christ? Like, have you, you, you ever seen how religious people treated Jesus? If you feel ostracized by religious people, Jesus is right there with you. You don't know, you don't think Jesus knows what it's like to have a weird relationship with your family? His dad wasn't his real dad. He faced rumors about his mom's unfaithfulness his whole life. Everybody said she messed around with some Roman soldier named Pantera. He thought 
People thought his real dad's name was Pantera. That's enough in itself to make you live a life of shame. That's a true story, by the way. And, uh, I mean, it's not true, but the rumor is true. Anyway, you get what I'm saying? So uh, don't go home and tell people that I said it's true that his dad was Pantera. So that's what I'm asking you. Um, his family, his, his brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. They didn't believe his story about being the son of God until after he came back from the dead. He had to rise from the grave for his family to accept him. It's a tall order. You don't think Jesus knows what it's like to have scars, wounds, or to be in debt? He, it's the whole story of the cross. He bore the cross, and on the cross he bore the weight of the world's sin, all of it, on his back. That debt, it was deep, deeper than ours. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and empathize with our circumstances, with our weaknesses. Whatever it is that's on your heart today, Jesus gets it. Believe me. You don't need to believe me. Just let him tell you. He took out the middle man. You don't need to come to me with your doubts or concerns or to Pastor Geo with your questions even. We're happy to field some of those questions, but we're just going to point you straight to Jesus because that relationship is for you and him, and we're happy to help. But you don't need the intermediary anymore because of Jesus. He wants nothing more than to hear from you today. His Father's heart wants nothing more than to see you resting in him because if you rest in him, it means you finally trust him. You finally see all that he has given you, all the ways he's been good to you, all the gifts he's put at your disposal, all the ways he loves you. That is prayer. And that is rest. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for a breakthrough this morning in the hearts of those who are on the fence, those who are afraid, and those who are facing some giants of their own, those who have doubted whether you are capable of fulfilling your promises in them. A breakthrough, Lord, is happening now in the hearts of those who have kept their distance. I pray that you would give those Folks in this room, courage. And those who are online watching, you would give them courage to finally, once and for all, say yes to you, directly to you, so that you get to hear their voice directly and they get to hear yours and be at rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.